Hello and welcome to the third episode of our Bite Size Briefing Podcasts. I'm Anna West, Knowledge Council in the Employment Team. And I'm Hannah Bates-Martins and I'm an Associate in the team. Our Bite Size Briefings are short podcasts designed to give you a basic overview of different areas of employment law by way of learning for those newer to employment law or a refresher if you have more experience. In today's briefing, we're going to be talking about individual redundancies looking at different redundancy scenarios and how you go about pooling and selecting employees for redundancy. So Hannah, do you want to kick off by taking us through the different redundancy scenarios which can arise? Sure. So there are three key redundancy scenarios that we come across regularly. The first is reducing headcount. So let's take an example of a bank which has 25 analysts but decides it can continue to operate effectively with only 20, thereby saving on staff costs. The analyst role will continue following redundancies, but crucially, there will be fewer people doing it. The second is where a particular role or roles might disappear altogether. There might be a restructuring, for example, um, where a business changes the nature of the products or services it provides, or where there is an internal reorganisation or technological change. And as a result, certain roles may disappear. The third scenario is relocation. So looking at our example of the bank, if it wanted to move its marketing team to a new location and dismiss some of those employees as a result, this would constitute a redundancy scenario. That is the case even if the same number of marketing employees are needed at the new site, because the definition of redundancy in law is focused on the specific place where the work is done. And in those three scenarios, it's only the first one where you would need to pool employees to be selected for redundancy, isn't it? That's right. So you'll need to pool where you're reducing headcount for a particular role or roles. So in our bank example, if there are 25 analysts who all carry out the same or similar role and five will be made redundant, all 25 employees will need to be placed in a pool and selection criteria will need to be applied in order to select the five individuals for redundancy. So in this case, the pool consists of people doing the same or very similar roles, but it can sometimes be wider, can't it, Anna? Yes, so usually the pool will be employees in the same or similar roles, but there may be situations where you could use a wider pool, which brings in employees in other roles, if those roles are effectively interchangeable. And whether roles are interchangeable is very fact-specific, but you might look at things like what work employees have done in the past, whether they've ever covered for each other and what work their contracts say they can be required to do. Ultimately, deciding which pool to use is really up to the employer. And as long as they've acted reasonably, it's unlikely an employment tribunal would interfere with that decision. The key is to make sure that you've considered the potential options and what you think is the best way to approach it. So even if you think it seems obvious what the pool should be, it is worth looking again and considering whether there are any alternatives, even if you end up deciding against them. You sometimes hear about employees being bumped in a redundancy situation, which can sound a bit strange. What does bumping mean in this context? Yes, bumping is a slightly odd expression and it's worth explaining what it means. So bumping is where there's an employee who would be made redundant, but they get put into another role, which is safe, and the person who was in that role is bumped out instead so the person who leaves is redundant even though their job still exists and that is capable of being a fair dismissal. It's probably easiest to illustrate that with an example. Say there was a small office which had two PAs and one receptionist 
and they decided they only needed one PA. They could decide to bump the receptionist out of her role and put one of the PAs into the reception role. This means the receptionist is redundant and entitled to redundancy pay, even though her job still exists. So employers can bump an employee out, but they don't have to, do they? No, that's right. They don't have to bump anyone if they don't want to. There were a couple of cases some years ago now which suggested there could be a duty to consider bumping in redundancy situations. But essentially what's happened was that the employer in those cases had chosen too narrow a pool. So bumping and pooling are really two sides of the same coin. Those cases were effectively saying that the pool was too narrow and the employer should have widened it. So really it all comes back to making sure that you've approached the pool properly. And once you've been through that exercise of deciding your pool, that's when you apply the selection criteria to the pool, as we've mentioned. And employers have a reasonably free reign to choose those selection criteria, don't they? Yes, that's right. So the employer does have a fair amount of flexibility and discretion in relation to the selection criteria it uses. But in order to avoid any unfair dismissal claims, it's really important to make sure any criteria are fair and reasonable and that they are objective and capable of independent verification. So lots of employers will include things like performance, ability, attendance records, qualifications held and disciplinary records. So when you come up with your selection criteria, you'll also need to avoid anything that could be classed as vague. In the past, employment tribunals have rejected criteria which have been too imprecise. For example, criteria like employees who would keep the company viable or employees who were best suited for the needs of the business under the new operating conditions. These criteria were not certain enough. It's not an exact science and it really will depend on the nature of the business and the roles, but criteria should be specific and measurable. So once you've established your selection criteria, you're going to be scoring the employees in the pool against those criteria. Are there any particular pitfalls to look at when you're doing that scoring? It feels like an obvious point, but you need to be careful that your criteria don't accidentally discriminate. So for example, if you look at attendance records as part of the process, you should discount any absence related to pregnancy, maternity, or other family friendly leave, or any absence connected with an employee's disability. Also, if your criteria cover a certain period where someone has been absent, say you're looking at sales figures and one employee was on maternity leave during that sales period, really think about how you're going to deal with that. So for example, whether you're going to use figures for another period or look at some sort of averaging over previous years. You really need to find an approach which is fair to the absent employee, but also to the other employees in the pool. And more generally, it is really important to make sure that scoring is approached consistently, consistently across all the employees in the pool, isn't it, Anna? Yes, absolutely. Scoring must be carried out consistently and crucially should be backed up by appraisals and other records like sales records, for example. If there's inconsistency between the scores and your other documents, then this could undermine the fairness of the selection. Employees will get a chance to challenge their scores in the consultation, which we'll talk about in the next podcast. But you want to make sure that you're as confident as you can be about the scoring when you go into that process. Okay, and then once you've carried out the initial selection, you'll know who the at-risk employees are. And that's when consultation can start, isn't it? That's right. So once you've made the provisional selection, you let the employees who've been selected know 
and tell them what criteria you've used and what their scores were and that they'll be able to discuss this with you at the consultation meeting. And it's important that you're always clear in your communications, um, letters, emails and so on, that the selection is provisional because, of course, things could change as a result of the consultation. And that consultation process will be the focus of our next podcast. So please do make sure you tune into that. In the meantime, if you have any questions about what we've covered today on pooling and selection, you can find us on our website and drop us a line and we'd be very pleased to hear from you. So it just remains to say thank you for listening today and we look forward to seeing you next time.